So our first Bible reading is going to be from Psalm 34, verses 1 to 8, found on page 478 of the Black Church Bibles. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is, he, it blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. The next passage is from James, and it should be on page 1043 of your church Bibles. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in, the, in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. God. Thanks, and thanks, Jess. Uh, there's a, a verse in a hymn that gets me every time, and the words are on the screen. Uh, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And it gets me every time because I know my own heart. I know that I am prone to doubt. I am prone to question. I am prone to drift. 
And it's crazy, isn't it? I know that God loves me. I know that Jesus died for me. I know that he forgives me. I know that he's restored me. I know that he's redeemed me. But the thing about my sinful heart that is prone to wander. A good friend of mine is called Dave, and he was wandering. Dave and I led youth group together about 20-odd years ago. And I met with him to read the Bible and discipled him one-to-one. And I just watched him drift in his walk with Jesus. I watched him wander from Christ. It started with the trials of life. It started with uh, his mother who was diagnosed with cancer. He then had a bitter, broken engagement. And he began to find his security in his job, his identity in his wealth, his happiness in his partying and his nightclubbing. And he still claimed to be a Christian. He still claimed to love God, but he had one foot in the church and one foot in the world. So I did what every good friend should do. I, I took the plank out of my own eye and to do that first. And I sat with him and I met with him and I listened to him and he talked about disappointment with God and doubting God and questioning God and I reminded him of the gospel. I reminded him of God's goodness and God's sovereignty and God's faithfulness and God's love. And we met week after week after week after week and praise God. Praise God that Dave came back to the Lord and put God first again. And praise God that Dave's now a pastor of a church. That's amazing, isn't it? And I share that story because it's really a living example of James 5, verses 19 and 20, which I think is the key to the whole book. James 5, 19 and 20 says this. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. We're called to save the wanderer, to bring them back. And maybe that is your story. Maybe you once wandered from the truth. Maybe you once wandered from God and someone loved you enough to bring you back to God. Praise God for that. Maybe you're here tonight. You're in this very church tonight and you know that you're wandering. Maybe you know that you're drifting from Christ. You're not just stagnant in your faith, you're going backwards. You're in this rip of this world and you're scared where you're going to end up. And I pray for a great work of the Spirit tonight to remind you how good God is. Or maybe like me, you're just prone to daily wandering and drifting and doubting. And the book of James is written to protect us from wandering. His favorite phrase in this letter is double-minded. He uses it in chapter 1, verse 8. Such a person is double-minded. The same again in chapter 4, verse 8. You double-minded. It's the, the person who, they're claiming to love God, but they'll also love the world. One foot in the church and one foot in the world. Chapter 4, verse 4, he says, If you flirt with the world, you will wander from Christ. And we've called this series A Faith Not Lacking because James wants your faith to be genuine and growing and active and living a a real faith that really works, not a, a wobbling faith that wanders from Christ. And I'm hoping you're here at church tonight because you don't want to wander, you don't want to drift, you want to grow and mature and flourish in your walk with Jesus. And can I just say, I love these little booklets, but it is pointless. It is no good writing copious 
sermon notes and having a bookshelf full of amazing Christian books and stuffing your head with information if it doesn't change the way that you live. James is a very practical book that says it matters how you live. In this book of James, there are 54 commands in just five chapters. He's saying, live out your faith, live out your faith. James is incredibly pastoral. The tone of this letter is one of love. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, my beloved ones, I love you. I want your faith to grow. It's a very, very challenging book. So week after week, we're going to be prodded and poked by the Spirit because he wants our faith to be not lacking. Let me give you a brief background. James was written in about 46 AD. So it's one of the first New Testament letters. If you just read verse 1 with me, it says, James, a, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's written by a man called James. The problem is there's lots of James in the Bible. There's at least three James in the Bible. There's James, son of Zebedee. There's James, son of Alphaeus. And we know it's neither of those because they died before AD 46. So this is James, the the son of Joseph and Mary. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, reread verse 1 again with that knowledge. He doesn't blow his own trumpet, does he? James, a slave of God and a slave of Jesus. This, this guy, James, is the most humble, godly prayerful man he was a leader in the early church and he's writing verse 1 to these 12 tribes that is the the Christians who have been scattered the people of God who do love Jesus but they're living in a hostile world that's James a pastor James to Christians seeking to live for Jesus in a hostile world and you probably know that the the book of James has got a very checkered past So Martin Luther called it that right strawy epistle. He couldn't stand the letter to James because this letter has very little mention of Jesus, not a lot of mention of the Holy Spirit or the gospel or God or the church. But the point is that James is not writing a a doctrinal handbook. He assumes the Christians he's writing to have got their theology right They're just not living it out. And that's why I think it's a perfect letter for many of us in Sydney. We've got our theology right, we've got our doctrine right, but we're not just living out our faith. James says your faith will change the way that you treat the poor and the needy. Your faith will change the way that you speak and the words that come out of your mouth. And your faith will change the way that you plan and plot for the future. Your faith will change the way you use your money. And yes, your faith will change the way that you handle trials and disappointments. And that's our theme for tonight, the way you handle trials and disappointments. It's Forrest Gump who said, Life is like a box of chocolates. And it's true. You never know what life is going to throw. Now put your hand up here if you know what's going to happen next week or next month or next year. We don't know, do we? But I hope you've learned this in life, that life is not supposed to be a a comfortable uh, cruise on an ocean liner. Life is more like a, a roller coaster with highs and lows and thrills and spills and sadness and disappointments and delights and joys. But life is not easy. 
So this next year, all of us here will face trials that we do not expect. Disappointments, sadness, slander, disease, unemployment, criticism, financial insecurities, even death. And being a Christian does not exempt you from trials and from sufferings. The issue is not whether the trials will come, it's when the trials come, how will you handle the trials? And what James is concerned about is when the trials come, will your trials cause you to worship God or wander from him? Will you delight in Jesus or drift from Jesus? Will your faith flourish or will your faith falter? Here's my big point for tonight. Endure to mature. Endure whatever trials you face. So you mature in your faith. Whatever trials God brings in your path, endure them, press on through them, cling on to God in them because you know that God is maturing you in that process. Let's read verses two to four. They're staggering verses. We're supposed to read them and go, what? Verse two, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be, be, you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, in verse 2, he doesn't say if you face trials. He says whenever you face trials because the assumption is that every Christian will face trials. What kind of trials? Well, verse 2, trials of many kinds. See, he's not just talking about the, the terrible trials. He's not just talking about the trials that many brothers and sisters around the world face today where they're persecuted for their faith and killed for their faith. He's talking about everyday trials, disappointments, sickness, loneliness, gossip, bereavement, being exploited, being disappointed. Can I just say, if you've never faced trials, now's the time to learn this lesson. Because one day you will face trials and one day you will suffer and you'll come back to this passage time and time and time again. But my guess is there are people in this room tonight and you are weighed down by your trials and you are burdened by your trials. I want to encourage you to, to hold on to God, to endure and press on through them because God is doing a good work in and through you. Now, how do you do that? How do you persevere? Four ways. Here's the first one. Joy. Consider it pure joy, says James. That's the attitude of verse two. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Can I have a pastoral moment? Joy is not the only response. It's okay to cry. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to shout. It's okay to be confused and frustrated. But amongst all those different emotions of, of grief and sadness and tears and fears, there's got to be this deep-seated emotion the Bible calls joy. What is joy? Joy is that trust, that contentment, that confidence that God is still good and God is still sovereign. Joy is that deep-seated emotion that does not depend on your circumstances. It never changes. I've used this before, but it is like the sun, isn't it? You know, yesterday, the sun was out, and the sun was beautiful, and the sun was brilliant. We all felt it. We all saw it. 
But next week it might be cloudy and next week it might be rainy and you can't see the sun. But you know the sun is always there, don't you? The sun is always there whether you can see it or not. That is like joy. Joy in the Christian life is always there. Sometimes it's obvious and other times it's less obvious. And it starts here in your brain, according to verse 2. Consider it pure joy. Count it pure joy. Evaluate your trial as pure joy. So when the trial comes, we don't just ask, God, why me? No, when the trial comes, we bring into our thinking that God is faithful and God is gracious and God is loving and God is compassionate and God is still at work. A man called C.S. Lewis, he discovered that after the death of his beloved wife. And when she died, he talked about how he's angry and he is bitter and he wants to shut God out of his life. And he starts to write a book and he calls it Surprised by Joy. And he is surprised by joy because he's discovered at the deepest, most painful moment of his life, God was closer to him than ever before. And God grew him through that time in a more intimate and a beautiful way. And that's the same with lots of people I know. I could give you lots of bitter examples of, of Christian men and women who, who say, oh, well, I used to believe in God, but then a divorce happened and I walked away. And I used to believe in God, but then the tragedy happened and I walked away. I can give you lots of self-pitying examples of people kind of go, oh, look, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. But I can give you some beautiful examples of godly men and women who have so matured in their faith through the, the hardest of situations. And I know I'm biased, but I think my wife is a great example of that. You know, when her first husband, Ben, died, she was 27 years old with a six-month-old child. And she said she would never choose that. But in that deepest moment of deepest despair, she experienced God's love and God's presence in a way that she said she never would have done if God hadn't taken her to that depth of despair. And James says in verse 3, you know, I hope you know this, brothers and sisters, you know, you believe, you trust, that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Your trials have a purpose, and the purpose is there in verse 4 that you may be mature and complete in Christ and not lacking anything. You may be made more and more like Jesus. That's the purpose of these trials. Now please listen very carefully. God does not guarantee to remove the hardship or deliver you from it. But he does guarantee he'll grow you through them. And God does not guarantee he'll answer the why me question. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't but he does guarantee he'll make you complete in Christ. So according to verse 3, God is testing our faith. It's not a nice word, testing, is it? A better word is refining, actually. He's refining our faith. And that word refining is the word that's used of putting a metal into a hot furnace. And you ever seen that happen? Someone grabs a piece of gold and they throw it into a furnace. You're thinking, what are they doing? What they're doing is they're allowing the heat of the furnace to, to bring to the surface all the impurities in that metal. And when you scrape off all the impurities, you're left with a much, much more pure, refined metal. And that's what God promises to do through your trials, through your hardships. He'll bring to the surface those things in your life that you need to change. He might bring to the surface impatience. 
or lack of contentment or greed. And if you allow him to take you through those trials and scrape it off and change you, you'll be a much more refined, complete, mature Christian person not lacking anything. But it's painful, isn't it? I remember being in China a few years, a few years ago now, and I thought I was pretty fit, and there was this mountain to climb, and it was supposed to take 12 hours to climb this mountain. And I was there thinking I'm super strong and super fit, and I was trenching at this mountain, and I kept being passed by these little tiny Chinese men and women. <laughs> and they were tiny and they were skinny, and they were putting me to shame. But to make things worse than that, they were carrying on their head these massive slabs of concrete <laughs> up the mountain to build this house at the top of the mountain. I'm thinking, how do they do that? And then I realized it wasn't the first time they climbed that mountain. And the first time they'd have been as slow as I am. And it'd be painful. But the more you do it, and the more you press on through the pain, the stronger your muscles get. Same in your faith. When you press on through the pain, the stronger you get in your faith. And next time, it's slightly easier to deal with. And next time, still, it's easier to deal with. So I want to ask you, what do you want in life? Do you want to be comfortable or mature in Christ? Do you want to be successful in life or complete in Christ? Because if you ever pray, God, please make me more like Jesus, don't be surprised if that process involved trials. I would love a fast track to Christian maturity. I'd love to pop down to Kurong and buy a book on being mature in Christ. But God often doesn't use paperbacks, he uses pain. So consider it pure joy. Number two, you pray and you ask God for wisdom. When you're hurting, when you are burdened, how can you see these trials as a maturing process? The answer is really simple. You pray. Verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom in terms of the trial, how is God using this trial? What do we do? Verse five, we ask God. Let me, let me read verse five literally. It's beautiful. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask the giving God, the God who loves to give generously. He's saying God is so generous, he's so single-minded, he just wants to give to you. So ask him, ask him for wisdom. It's about who you ask, verse four. Verse five, rather, you ask God. You, you don't just ask family, you don't ask friends, you don't just ask your pastor. You get on your knees and you ask God and you ask him for wisdom. It's okay to ask, please God, take my pain away. That's okay. But you also ask, please God, show me what you're teaching me. Show me what you're doing in my life here, God. Can we just say that there is nothing more beautiful than the sight of a man or a woman on their knees before God, humbly begging with God for wisdom. That's never a sign of weakness. God longs for us to ask. He's generous. He is selfless. He's a giving God. There's that great hymn, isn't there? Uh, what a friend we have in Jesus. He says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we don't carry everything to God in prayer. So please, get on your knees. Humble yourself before your creator and just pray. 
God, show me what you're doing in my life. Show me how you're growing me. Show me how you're refining me. Please, God. And again, he, he might not take away your suffering, but he won't allow bitterness or envy or self-pity to take root. So the problem's not with God, the problem with us. Either we don't ask, we're too proud to pray, or we do what James calls pretend praying. That's verses six to eight. When you ask God, when you get down on your knees to pray, you must believe that God will answer. You must trust God to give you wisdom. You mustn't doubt. Because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Now that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded or double-souled or spiritual schizophrenia, it says. It's what I call pretend praying. I know I do it. I'm sure you do it as well. Now we get down on our knees and, and we, we, we pretend to talk to God, but at the same time we're asking God for wisdom. We are, we are in our own mind, working out, working out how, how we would solve the problem. Let me give you an example. You know, you, you want to buy a house on a loan or shore. You think, oh God, please, I want to stay in this area to be at church and I need your help, Lord. And you're praying. At the same time, you're flicking through your phone on realestate.com trying to work out how you would solve the problem. Maybe your problem is being slandered at work and you're on your knees saying, please God, show me what to do with the situation. And in your own mind, you're, you're already coming with your plot and your plan to get revenge and seek retaliation and get your gossip back. And sometimes I almost feel like I'm telling God what he should do and how he should fix my problem for me my way. And it's crazy because if I let God teach me, if I let God transform me, I might learn a bit of patience or learn a bit of forgiveness. I don't know you. Maybe you're better at praying than I am. But please, just single-mindedly seek wisdom from God. Number three, eternity. Fix your eyes on the prize. Do you know that mantra? mantra, uh, God is my father. Heaven is my home. And every day I'm one step closer to glory. God is my Father, heaven is my home. Every day I'm one step closer to glory. But when you know that, it will change the way you face your trials. Because there's a wonderful promise in verse 12. Do you believe this? Blessed is the one who perseveres, who presses on under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life, the victory crown that the Lord has promised to those who love him. It's a beautiful promise. It's the picture of standing on that last day and we are surrounding the throne of our Saviour and we're joined by hundreds and millions of other saints who have persevered through sufferings far, far, far worse than than we would ever face. But we're there and we're worshipping Jesus and we're standing before the one who loved us and shed his blood for us and, and I know that I want to say, oh Jesus, I'm so sorry for the way and it just goes, shh. Paul, I loved you. I died for you. I saved you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Here's the crown of victory that I don't deserve. And when you get that, when you get that you're heading for heaven and you don't deserve it and there's nothing you can do to earn it and you're going to get the crown of life, it puts all your trials into perspective. We're just called to press on one day after the other, still trusting Jesus. As many of you know, I used to compete many years ago in, in Ironman triathlons and at crazy distances. It's the, it's the end of the marathon and, uh, and there's, there's moments when you want to stop running 
and your run turns into a, a jog and your jog turns into a shuffle and your shuffle just comes into one step in front of the other. But I keep going because I want to cross that finish line. And the thing I love about Ironman triathlons, it, it doesn't really matter whether you come first or last. It really doesn't. Everyone gets a medal. And the thing I love about Ironman triathlons is that is the winner, in fact, everybody who crosses the finish line is expected to wait the 16 hours until that last person crosses the finish line. And there's great celebration when the last one comes home. And that's the picture of the Christian life, you know. It doesn't matter whether we're first or last. As long as we manage to put one foot in front of the other, heading in the right direction, heading for home, longing for glory. And that perspective helps us in our trials because the world says live for the moment. But the reality is that our moments can be so overwhelming and so crippling and so all-consuming. And we want to shout, get me out of this moment. But if we're fixing our eyes on eternity, on that crown of glory, it changes your attitude to your, your momentary troubles. It's an identity thing. You know who you are. You know where you're heading. You know who you are in Christ, verse 9. Because believers in humble circumstances who have nothing in this world, who are poor, they take pride in their high position, they're a child of God, they've got everything in Christ. I've had lots of people at church by the bridge over the last 14 years who have been retrenched and lost their jobs. And I can guarantee they always come to me a few months later and say, it's the best thing that ever happened. Because in those moments, I realized that my worth was not in my work. And my identity was not in my wealth. It's in Christ. So if you're here tonight in a humble, lowly position, take pride that you're a child of God, your identity is in Christ. But I'm guessing most of us are here in verse 10. We are the rich, we are the wealthy. Because Australians are very wealthy. And James is saying, don't take your pride in your money. Take your pride in your low position. You're just a creature longing to see your creator. You're just a sinner in need of a savior. Your money can't save you. You may be asset rich, but that will pass away, verse 10. And I've watched too many rich businessmen die far too young to realize that my identity is not in my bank balance, but in Christ. So when you know who you are and you know where you're heading, that changes the way that you face your trials. And then lastly tonight, this confidence that God is good. That great psalm, God is good and everything he does is good. That's what verse 17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above. Even your gift of trials, even your gift of suffering, that's a good gift from God to mature you and to grow you so your faith is not lacking. So please don't shout at God and please don't blame God. Verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God can't be tempted by evil, nor does God tempt anyone. Please don't think God is trying to trip you up. God is trying to build you up. Don't be deceived, he says. God isn't tempting you. The devil can tempt you, but God can't. In fact, we tempt ourselves, verse 14. Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and they're enticed by their own sin that gives birth to sin and then gives birth to death. See, here's the reality, and I've seen this many, many, many times. With every trial comes a temptation and a temptation to sin. 
It's a bit like uh, when you go fishing, you put the bait out and you know, that little fish comes along and sees this bait and goes, oh, that looks nice. And they're lured and they're, they're trapped by sin. And I've seen it time and time again. So maybe, maybe your child is being slandered. And the temptation that comes with that is retaliation, revenge, and gossip. And when you give into that temptation, you sin. Maybe your temptation is financial. Your trial is financial rather. And the temptation that comes with that financial trial is to covet, to envy, to get jealous, and then you're lured into sin. Maybe your trial is being lonely. And the temptation that comes with that is to seek your security or your companionship or your love anywhere but Jesus. What James is saying is we're called to deal with our sin. Because when sin becomes a lifestyle and a habit, then God gets squeezed out and we wander from the truth. So I hope you've got people in your life who will help you in your trials to point out when you're being lured into sin. I've met with two guys almost weekly for the past, I don't know, 12, 13 years. And in the trials of life, they are very good at pointing out where I'm sinning. We talk about workaholism or sexual sin or materialism or gossip or greed or anger or disappointments. My heart is deceptive. I need those blokes to point out sin in my life. And I think you do too. But remember, God is good. Even your trials are a good gift from God. He chose to give us new birth, verse 13. He loves us. He's given us new birth, not because we're nice, but because of his grace. And even a trial is a gift of grace. So when you're facing that trial, don't blame God. Look at yourself and ask God how he's changing you. I've been a Christian now for 29 years and a pastor for almost 20. And there are some things in life and ministry that I deeply, deeply regret. And one of those things is not loving Christians enough to point out when they're wandering. Not being quick enough to spot someone who's drifting and not loving enough to say, come back to the Lord, please don't drift in your faith. So I'm here tonight to lovingly warn you, if you're here and you're drifting, please, 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 come back to the Lord. Grow, flourish in your faith because God wants you to have a faith that is not lacking. We pray. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Father, I do pray for any here tonight who are in the midst of a deep trial deeply sad, disappointed, struggling, frustrated. Father, I pray that you would comfort them and sustain them. Father, I beg that you would show them how you are growing them and maturing them and holding onto, onto them in this trial. And please surround them with, with Christian friends who can love and care for them well. Father, we're all conscious of people in our lives who we know and love who are wandering or who have wandered. And I pray, Lord, that in your mercy and your grace, you bring them back, bring them back to yourself.
Father, when we go through the hard times, help us to consider it joy, to ask you for wisdom. Help us, Lord, to, to know that you're always good and to fix our eyes on that victor's crown. We ask that for Jesus' sake.